You weren't even a writer until recently. You just bailed on Dad because he's not as successful as he used to be and hasn't gotten the recognition he deserves. You sound like your father. No, I'm glad I sound like him. You disgust me. You're being a shit, Walt! I'm taking the cat. How do you make God laugh? How? You make a plan. Everybody. Welcome to the Rector's Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapole. I am Jim Laskowski. We are reunited together, together yeah. again. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is going to be a great show. I've been friends with uh, our guest for this episode for about 18 years now, which is just crazy to think about. Um, so I couldn't be more excited to have him on the show He's uh, he's directly responsible for not only introducing me to some of my favorite bands, but also the director of this particular episode, and along with the debut film we'll be discussing. Uh, he's an established journalist and interviewed a plethora of talented people and has written about movies for the Austin Chronicle, Texas Observer, and Culture Map. Welcome, Dan Solomon. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, man, how's it going? Good. good, 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 good. Yes, boy, oh boy, so much to discuss for this episode. Yeah, it took a while, Jim, but we were we we got back together finally. Yeah, yeah, no, we we took a month off from each other and felt good, <laughs> felt good. The, the therapist said that it's exactly your, what needed to happen. Your mom and I are just taking a little break. It's okay. <laughs> uh, it's nothing you did. We both love you very much. I know. I had to uh, record podcasts separately for a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And eventually, once I move to the city, hopefully, we'll get back in the same room and things will be back to the way they were. I'm really looking forward to that. Adjust. Uh, uh, my, uh, I, I was working one job uh, cleaning apartments, and I was working about 25 hours a week there. And then slowly, the hours dwindled so much that I had to get a, another job where I'm now working uh, 57 hours a week. So. <laughs> As soon as I sort of settle into my 60-hour work week, um, I think I'll be able to, uh, you know, be prepared. Because that was another problem with the Lars von Trier episode was just I didn't have time to watch the movies I want to. But, hey, Jim, now that we're together, I can tell you publicly, good job. I enjoyed it. Oh, same with you, Patrick, and the great Richard Lester episode. I was very happy to hear that as well. All right. Well, now that we've jerked each other off, why don't we uh, <laughs> what we watched this week? Why don't we? Because we're just going to make this uh, a quicker than usual episode. Because, uh, you know, it's, we're, we could use one of those once in a while. And plus, the director of this episode, Noah Bombach, is kind of known for making films that are sh- on the short side, especially Squid and the Whale, which we'll be talking about, along with his debut film, Kicking and Screaming. Um, so, yeah, it should be a good show. But um, let's quickly uh, talk about what we watched this week. I'm going to go first this time. Yeah, we're watching movies, both out and at home. Planet of the Apes, the Forbidden Zone. Director's Club Podcast. Director's Club Podcast. Director's Club Podcast. 
kind of appropriate just uh, in light of movies that contain protagonists <laughs> that are quite unlikable, to say the least. Um, I had the pleasure of catching Billy Wilder's amazing film, Ace in the Hole, on the big screen <laughs> last night. And you. I wouldn't say my favorite Billy Wilder movie because I love Sunset Boulevard so much. But yeah, that's that's such an amazing movie. I'm so jealous you got caught that on the big screen. Yeah, the the aspect ratio was kind of a issue since it was digitally projected and everything. But uh, hey, you know, uh, eh, it was still worth it just to see Kirk Douglas larger than life on the big screen. And this is one of his more obtrusive films in terms of how he frames his face at certain moments and it it's crazy to think of this movie in context because billy wilder did have his biggest success to date with sunset boulevard and kirk douglas had just started in this crowd-pleasing uh movie champion and what do they do they go together to make uh you know they get together to make one of the nastiest most scathing films to come out at that time and at the time it was actually completely dismissed and and it bombed big time. Uh, you know, Scott's, you know, the reliably so, you know, with Billy Wilder, he's, it's got incredible dialogue. Like, you know, I can handle big news and little news. And if there's no news, I'll go out and bite a dog. Yeah, I was, I was going to reference that. One of my things I love about Billy Wilder is how he opens movies. Yes. Um, uh, whether it's like Sunset Boulevard, a man narrating his own his own murder scene or, mm-hmm. or uh, one of my favorite things ever is five graves to Cairo, which is a tragically a film that I saw in Turner classic movies once, but it's tragically unreleased on, uh, on video. Um, I'll have to put that on the list. <laughs> it opens with, it, it opens with a tank rolling over a hill and then a, a and then a half dead man falling out and he crawls through the <laughs> desert to a hotel He's he's an ally soldier, and he crawls to a hotel which is swarming with Nazis, and that's how the movie opens. Like nice, he knows how to set. Um, you know, he knows how to open a movie. Yeah, I happen uh, to love movies about journalism in general. You know, and uh, especially Shattered Glass and All the Presidents Met. I think this one might be my favorite. It's just the way. I mean, it's it's way ahead of its time and how it exposes even more, even more than uh, broadcast news. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, broadcast news is just kind of like the sunnier romantic side of uh, I, I, the relationships. It's but it's, I, well, it's, it's definitely more humane. I mean, it's not definitely not cynical, but I would say it's, uh, it's pretty scathing. It's a pretty, also pretty scathing indictment. Oh, yeah. Well, they're, they're obviously with what William Hurt sure. does and just, yeah. No, I mean, it, it, gets, it goes to some dark places. Dan, um, uh, just real quick. Dan, have you seen uh, Ace in the Hole? I haven't. Okay. Well, you, you're a fan uh, of broadcast news, either. though, right? You know, I haven't seen broadcast news either. I'm surprised. I figured that you you might have at some point. No, but you should. I think it's it's totally up your alley. I think yeah, you'd next, lo- love it. Next time Barnes and Noble has one of their Criterion sales, those are the two that uh, they'd make a great double feature. Oh, absolutely. So. And if you want to throw in network too, you can. But I think mm-hmm. that's a little bit more preachy and kind of pretentious at times but i I still like it i just there's just moments where it gets kind of a i don't know the the just sort of the the pedestal you know putting that uh that character on a pedestal and having him rant and rave at certain moments kind of bugs me in general with because like i think i think the approach that billy wilder has here is 
you know, it, everything plays out within the story and character interaction and never looks at the camera and says, this is what's wrong, <laughs> you know, and it's like this distortion of truth in the field of journalism. And, you know, it's it, it's it's got that cynical, biting satire that you come to expect, but it has really an incredible, darkly comedic performance from Kirk Douglas. He's just this force of nature. And like that first act, you're you're kind of entertained by how horrible and charismatic well, he is. I would say like one of the things I love about Billy Wilder is that um, he is able to, you know, unlike, you know, something like network, which he, I haven't seen in a while. So I can't, I can't really, I didn't love it the first time I saw it, but I don't trust my opinion of the first time I saw it. But one of the things that's great about Billy Wilder is how he, you know, smuggles in this sort of commentary and satire mm-hmm. through this, through dark humor. I mean, the original title of, uh, I can't wait. Actually, I can't remember if it was the original title or because they re-released it with a different Ace in the Hole with a different title. Yeah, the Big Carnival. It, it was released. Okay, yeah, re- Big yeah. Carnival, which is a perfect sort of. Uh, I almost kind of like that more than Ace in the Hole as a title because it is what. Um, by the way, Ace in the Hole is a story about a newspaper man who um, is taken along uh, as uh, to a man who's trapped in a cave. He smells that he can sort of drag this this sort of try this out into a human interest story of and sensationalize oh, it and yeah right like you know like the Chilean miners was sort of had people gripped this is this was if the Chilean miners were intentionally stuck down underground um, for the profit of the media and it does become a huge carnival people gather around and then people see all the people gathered around and they start selling. Uh, I they start you know they start selling hot dogs at the site. <laughs> There's like a nearby diner which becomes completely like it, yeah. Cause, uh, Billy because uh, Kirk Douglas plays this sort of rundown reporter who um, uh, who is he's been kicked out of every newspaper because he's just so vicious and so mean and so hard to work with. So he's sort of stuck in this small town. So you see all these small town people be sort of corrupted by their sort of n- the national spotlight. Um, yeah, they're out to get something out of it. The whole experience of what's going what's going on. There's just like a guy trying to sell his insurance to people, and the woman just sees it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, have more uh, customers at the diner, and she wants to get away from everything, and so she gets is able to just exploit this whole situation. She's the, she's the wife of the of the husband that's that's trapped. And uh, there's there's some shit in this movie that I can't get over because it's it, you, it's just so jarring. Like there's just this one point where, you know, and as amoral as this lead character is, she's like she's coming on to him and he just slaps her like <laughs> really fucking hard. And it's just I don't expect that. And I don't even expect that. There's a moment in the apartment, too, where. The doctor is slapping Shirley MacLaine after she just tried to commit suicide, and it is like I I can't believe I'm seeing that. You know, I mean, he is so confrontational in trying to get to the you know the reality, the heart of what's taken place, and you know sometimes it's you know not pleasant, and that's kind of you know like I, I thought of also Nicholas Ray's Bigger Than Life, which I talked about last year as a movie just because it's set in that era and it was made in those times you're just not expecting that kind of visceral intensity absolutely also uh sort of when we talked about the prowler mm-hmm. um, yeah on the joseph losey episode the prowler is another film where you just don't 
Um, I love that to be sort of shocked by, oh, how'd they get that? Like, how'd they get away with that? Yeah. You can put nowadays, some, someone has put something in the MPAA's drink where <laughs> pretty much, unless it's explicit sexuality, like, uh, like the Cunnilingus and Blue Valentine or something, like, everything just gets an R rating. Like, there was a time when horror movies, you know, had to be cut for gore. Uh, you know, there wasn't really anything cut from like Hostel 2 or from Piranha 3D or any of that. Like, yeah, they can just do whatever they want now as far as sort of dark tone, like, you know, tone and violence and all that. Um, so it's always exciting to see films from a time before that, you know, this film, I think, was uh, may have been pre MPAA. I don't think it even has a rating. Right. I think it's approved. You know, yeah, it just pushed the envelope at a time when, you know, it, it, like this was in, inspired by a real life incident that had occurred. And uh, it's just crazy to watch it now in light of things like TMZ and existing. You know, I mean, it's, it, and, you know, just even just thinking of uh, how, you know, we've seen certain tragic events play out and the the constant uh, bombardment of the news media i just this movie just really hits home now more than ever it's it's it's, it's a it's a classic in my mind and one of billy wilder's darkest and um most fully realized scripts i mean this is a movie i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give away the ending but it just has the one of the best final shots i've ever seen involving the lead character and um you know Everybody should see this movie. Uh, we've been talking too much, Patrick. Let's get Dan in on the conversation here. Hey, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really want to hear about what you've watched, and I know it's uh, something that uh, neither of us have uh, had gotten a chance to see, but I really want to hear your thoughts on this movie. Well, um, there's uh, Bart Layton's The Imposter. Yes. Which is the uh, documentary. It was the, the documentary hit of, of Sundance, and it was a big hit at South by Southwest, and uh, – I had the opportunity to talk to Leighton about it for a story in the Austin Chronicle that'll be out by the time that this uh, podcast goes live. And uh, yeah, I had some some real contentions with the with the way the movie's presented, and uh, I found it really uh, it's extremely compelling to watch. But there's also some stuff about it that made me really uh, really uncomfortable. And uh, what, yeah. what is the film about? So it's about this. Uh, this family in San Antonio, Texas, um, the youngest child is, disappears one day and no one knows what happens to him. And then several years later, they get a phone call saying that he's been found in France. And when the family goes to, to meet the person in question, it's clearly not him. It's some other guy entirely who's years older and uh, looks totally different and has a French accent. And... Um, they still take him in and the movie is about how this guy, first of all, how he learned about this incident in order to, to fake what happened to him and then why the family took him in and why he went to the trouble of uh, impersonating this, uh, this kidnapped boy. So, so the film doesn't, it, it isn't like say a, um, a, a catfish kind of film where the film that, do you learn fairly early on that he is not the son that they think he is, or is it sort of? Oh yeah, it makes that really clear because um, the story, the 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 imposter in question, he's actually fairly well known for this. He's done this many times, um, and uh, and so yeah, the film doesn't. It's not deceptive in that it tries to 
trick you as far as like did the filmmaker tell a true story or not? Well, I mean, I guess that that kind of is the question um, because it, it's very manipulative in the way that it's edited. Um, With the reenactments? There are reenactments throughout mm-hmm. the thing. and um, they're, they're well done, but it also definitely – it's hard when you're watching a film to recognize that what you're seeing in a documentary is not what happened. It's explicitly not what happened. This is an actor reenacting the event. And it's clear that they're reenactments, but it still um, gives the filmmaker a level of control over what your expectations are and what you think have really happened. Hmm. Um, that I don't think it really earns. So um, I had I had a lot of questions for Bart Layton, who directed it. Now we we we've actually in the past done an episode on Errol Morris. Um, what do you feel, Dan, about sort of you know Errol Morris? He, he sort of made a career out of mocking the idea of sort of objective truth, and his documentaries yeah. often you know feature reenactments and you know very imaginative sort of editing and. Like uh, what? What about the impossible? Right, well, I guess I should ask before I even assume that you approve of the blue thin line, like the thin um, blue line. Yeah, yeah, the thin blue line. Uh, what, what? What's the difference, sort of, between something like that and the imposter? Well, the difference for me is that it's as, as a as a person watching it, I felt like I was supposed to take away a lot of things that. Uh, that Leighton wanted me to think were true. Like, I think he wanted me to feel like uh, the, the imposter in question, um, his name's Frederick Bourdain, um, that he, that he was gloating over this and it was edited so that um, you would have people who the, the family in question would, um, would go on the, in the film um, you know, it would, there would be a clip of them talking about, well, we just, you know, he just seemed very vulnerable and we wanted to help him. And then it would cut to a clip of, of archival or not archival footage, but of, of interview footage of him where he would just be kind of smiling and licking his lips. And you would see the juxtaposition of those images of the family saying, we, you know, we just wanted to help him. And then him grinning about the, and, and grinning. And you would assume that he was grinning about what they just <laughs> said when you don't know at all what he was responding to in that moment. So it, it felt very heavy handed in terms of he wanted you to have a, an impression of uh, boredom that we don't know had anything to do with what was really happening. That's that's kind of an interesting because I recently uh, rewatched uh, King of Kong, mm-hmm. the, uh, the documentary sort of about the 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 challenge back and forth between Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell for the Donkey Kong World uh you know, championship score or whatever. And that is a film that is also like, that is a film that distorts the truth immensely in order to sort of fit the story into a typical uh, sports movie kind of formula. Yeah. And I am the, and it bothered me not necessarily, you know, sort of what you were saying. It's not necessarily that the film wasn't objectively true because I, I do sort of believe that it's not the documentarians you know, job. I think that a filmmaker's job, whether they're a documentary and otherwise, is to make a good film, not to make a you know, not to only pursue truth above all else. Um, what, what, what it's that it felt so. Once I knew the real story, and I look back and I saw the way it was edited, it was edited so heavy. It's like you said, so heavy-handed, sort of making Billy Mitchell into this evil kind of guy when he's really just kind of this dick. Um, it, but it's sort of interesting trying to figure out um, are you like 
there's a difference between is the film telling the truth and is the film uh, just sort of ham, you know, ham-handedly made and or is it you know is it just working in general on the audience like. Because, you know, I mean, if the strength of the story lends itself to, ha- you know, to this, like, dramatic license and, you know, he wants to embellish certain things or uh, it, it's just I can see it being as I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. But, you know, just how the if the family experienced some trauma from this, that would rub me the wrong way, knowing that the filmmaker is employing some, like, manipulative tactics just to get a response from the audience. And well, it's it's a lot more complicated than that when it comes to the family, but I'll I'll leave that uh, until everyone has watched the film, right? Um, but it, it, it's certain the family uh, is not innocent in all of this is is one <laughs> of the points that it makes, um, and it's it's all uh, it's all it's all very complicated, I guess. Um, you know, the question that I had, and I still haven't really decided. Even you know, I, I uh, you know this the story that runs in the Austin Chronicle this week. Um, you know, it, it spends a lot of time with uh, with Leighton sort of trying to get answers to these questions, and I still don't really know yet, um, or or probably ever, what I really you know hmm. what he was doing there. But um, I think that the issue isn't so much is this objectively true as is this objectively untrue? Is this like deliberately dishonest um, filmmaking? And I, you know, I like. Uh, Leighton and I, I liked his movie, but I still am not certain that it wasn't genuinely a dishonest film. Yeah, like so his, you, his intent might be a little fuzzy. You have concerns sort of about about you have concerns about sort of the ethics of documentary filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, like Catfish or, or something like that. It's not that I um, that I feel like everything has to be you know objective truth, but I, I think that. If you're going to be deliberately dishonest, then you don't really have a, a place hmm. as a you know as a as a documentarian or as a, a journalist, which you know, or a reporter at least, which all of these things you know, you're at, at some point you're making very slanted narratives designed to using real people to tell a fictional story, and I, I think that there are some ethical concerns with that. Interesting. Well, we're both going to check it out. Uh, it opens up in sh- here in Chicago in a couple weeks, and I'm, oh, I've heard nothing but good, amazing reviews about it from all the uh, Canadian podcasts that have seen it. And uh, I know that they 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 have some reservations in the same way that you have, but I think they were so drawn in with the story and uh, entertained by everything that takes place. I think that uh, they let that be the primary, uh, you know, focal point of praising the movie and but i do think that documentary ethics are 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 worth discussing and even when something like bowling for columbine came out and one of a colleague of mine found that movie to be extremely manipulative but uh maybe it's just like my emotional investment sort of overrode like just seeing oh michael moore did this and this and this just to get that emotional response and like you know the, the 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 logical part of my brain shut down because of how I was responding to the overall um, thesis of that movie, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I, bowling, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I think that something like Bowling for Columbine, you know, is not anywhere near objective and it's not trying to be. It's a, right. yeah. that, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, a, 
a polemic. That's a that's an essay, mm-hmm. you know, an yeah, op-ed. It's, it's, um, gonna, it's a film essay. It's not it's not really documenting an event. It's making sure. it, it's it's more of an editorial than anything. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move along, Patrick. I know you got some. Uh, we got an email, didn't we? Yeah, oh, there's I some slamming of doors going on. Hold on. <laughs> uh, I I didn't really get to watch a lot of uh, other films. This week again, I'm sort of still adjusting to uh, my heavier workload, uh, so I, I, I'm still sort of I'm kind of lazy at this point. Where any <laughs> free time I have, I just want to stare into space. Um, I, I have been reading more comics recently, so I can recommend to all of our listeners that if they're at, at all interested in superheroes or comics in general, even if they don't like superheroes, they should check out uh, Hawkeye number one. Um, by uh, Matt Fraction is the uh, writer of that. He It's an incredible sort of story about treat-level human story about him sort of fighting with his landlord. <laughs> it's, it's really, there's no supervillains. There's no, you know, there's no uh, cosmic rays or anything like that. It's just sort of him standing up for all the people in his building who stand to be evicted. And it's really, the art and the writing is everything really great. So, uh, yeah, Hawkeye number one is, if you... Live near a comic book shop. Check that out. But I, we did get an email from Al Schwartz, who I've known for a long time on Chud.com, who's a great guy. Um, and you can call him Al. Yeah, you can call him Al. Uh, Paul Simon was thrilled when I told him about this. Me, me and Paul Simon go <laughs> way back. We were both. Uh, I used to be on SNL a lot. It's a long story. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> Al had uh, a lot of, uh, or not a lot. He had three questions for us that I thought it might be co- sort of fun to answer. I like fun. Yeah, we again. This is going to be a shorter episode, so we we can't go too in depth. No, 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 uh, no, no, no. But the first question is, uh, what project, film project, obviously, uh, currently in development, are you most excited for? Uh, which is a question I thought I'd pose to uh, you, Jim. Um, I think Dan might agree with this, so maybe it'll just work out that way, hopefully. Sure. I recently heard that Snow Crash is going to be developed into a film. And this oh, is- shit, you're right. That is, I, I didn't even think about that. That's, I had to change my answer. I agree uh, with this. Joe Cornish of uh, Attack the Block apparently is uh, developing this into a, a film, and it's one of my favorite books of all time. Again, Thanks to Dan, another recommendation that uh, he uh, threw my way, and I, uh, it's, it's an incredible book. It's one of those sort of classic cyberpunk kind of tales, but it's got a lot going on. It's <laughs> just so much overwhelming uh, kind of like philosophy and uh, theology, and it's just – it's one of those that just consume – it's one of those books that completely consumes you, and you know, uh, despite having – reservations about a you know full blown film adaptation, how they gonna, you know, make that work. And certainly I'm excited for whatever Joe Cornish does next. Um so yeah, I mean I, I I'm just this is, it's more of a curiosity, but because I'm such a huge fan of the book, I I have uh, high expectations for it for sure. I'm not uh I'm not sure about a Snow Crash adaptation, especially in, you know, twenty twelve because yeah. you know, Snow Crash is a Terrific book, um, but I, I have a hard time imagining. You know, so much of what it envisioned is stuff that we kind of take for granted now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. Um, I'm excited for anything that Joe Cornish does next, though. So I, I'm with you on that. And 
it certainly could be a good movie. Um, it's it's an exciting story. So they yeah. could do you know if anybody's going to do it well, Joe Cornish is someone whose name I'd be excited to see attached to it. Cool. Yeah, I really. I mean, this is sort of. I don't know if this is officially greenlit or if he's just attached to it. I I haven't been necessarily keeping up with the news on it, but um, this would feels to me like. Like Attack the Block is a very fun film and it's a great sort of genre exercise. And I think a lot of people dismissed it because they have hangups <laughs> about bullies being the lead of a film. <laughs> in, uh, nah. Yeah, but I think it's, you know, I, I would recommend those people go ahead and watch 400 Blows and see if maybe the main character of that film wasn't, uh, <laughs> you know, wasn't <laughs> the same kind of delinquent that the, the kids in. Uh, Attack the block are. Um, I'm really excited for for that. I'm I'm also really excited to see. Uh, and I didn't even bother to look this up. What What's the next film by the Wachowskis? That the trailer that just released. Oh yeah. Yes. Cl- yeah. Cloud Atlas. That's it. I. Uh, this is either going to be one of like the greatest things ever, or it's going to be one of the biggest like hysterical bad movies ever. Because it looks so like the scale is so huge yeah. and it looks so earnest, and I really did not like that trailer. Um, I really thought like just so much of it was just. I mean, speaking again, just of the trailer and having not read the book, like some of it was just like people speaking cliches as mm-hmm. like they they looked into cameras <laughs> and it's just like look at these big at these famous actors. They are sad because connections. Um, and it's such an ambitious thing. And I, but I really think, you know, other than the Matrix sequels, like the Wachowskis are really good at making films and adapting, you know, uh, I, I, you know, visually. Uh, yeah, they're incredibly uh, not, imaginative visually storytellers. I think, you know, I think the, the script for Speed Racer, you know, shocked both me and you, Jim. Uh, you can Definitely. go back to our, uh, Wachowski brother episode for that, but neither of us expected to care so much about the characters, and I don't think anyone else adapting Speed Racer would have cared so much about the characters. And my one concern about this film would be: is it going to be so obsessed with the ideas that all of the characters feel like sketches? Apology, apologies for that uh, ambulance. Bye. You didn't. Um, you didn't cause it. Yeah, but <laughs> you don't. Know. You don't know that, Jim. I might have set a fire somewhere. Um, so I'm really excited for Cloud Atlas. Okay. Um, the next question is: uh, Do you have a dream project slash adaptation that is not in development that you'd really like to see? Hmm. Um, now, I have an answer for this. If you guys go ahead, no, go ahead. Um, have you ever heard of the Micronation of Sealand? <laughs> Sounds yes. like Dan has. Um, you need if you haven't look up the Wikipedia page. And in fact, we should probably include a, a link to the Wikipedia page on the show notes for this episode. Will do. So go to the website. You'll see the link for the for Sealand. But basically, it was an oil like it was a oil derrick type platform in the middle of the ocean, about a couple miles off the coast of United Kingdom, that a family uh, stormed. I guess they just they sort of climbed on and they declared themselves their own sovereign nation. Uh, and because they weren't bothering anyone, and because no one gave a shit about this abandoned oil platform. They just said, all right, yeah, whatever. Like no one officially recognized it as a nation. But so <laughs> it was so it was a nation that was about like 200 feet long, 200 feet wide. Um, and then once 
they became a nation, people be that like someone else defected to Sealand, despite the fact that no other countries recognize it as a nation. And then those people who join that, uh, who who joined the nation of Seal, the Seal, micronation of Sealand, um, they tried to throw a coup and take it over. And basically, it sounds like the best Wes, Wes Anderson movie that was never made, where <laughs> this, this family declares themselves a government. Like I think, like the son was the Secretary of Treasury. Like it was that sort of situation. Oh, wild. Um, and then like someone else sort of is like, oh, this sounds like the thing for me. Some other crazy people or whatever, and they try to take it over. And then there was like fighting over whoever possessed Sealand. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like it's an incredible story and it's really silly and it sounds – like I said, it's like, it sounds like a really good Wes Anderson movie or something. And I'd love for someone to make it into a movie because I think sort of juxtaposing the roles of a family with the roles of government could be – you know could say so much and it's really silly and it sounds – it's just a fun concept. So apparently there was at one point uh, a movie in development for Sealand but it never went anywhere. I'd really love to see a Sealand movie. That's a really good idea. It's a really good concept. Yeah. So yeah, in regards to your question there, uh, this I I don't know. Nothing really popped to mind other than something that I can just summarize super fast that I've been I think I've brought up since we started hanging out, Patrick. And it's ridiculous, and it's something that nobody would necessarily endorse. But it's something I've always wanted to do, and it's oh, a sh- it's yeah. a it's a remake of a movie. Uh, that I, I always wanted to write the screenplay for because this had such a huge impact on me when I was like 12 or 13 years old. I went to the River Oaks Movie Theater in Calumet City, Illinois to see in an abandoned theater with my mom of extremely terrifying... I mean, it starts off and it's kind of like a lifetime movie. Things are light and fluffy. And then... It all goes to hell, with the last 15 minutes being one of the most insanely visceral and disturbing things I'd ever seen. It's a movie called Lisa from 1990, directed by Gary Sherman. Um, and I've, I've always thought this could use a remake slash update, because it does feel dated, but it's themes about this girl being attracted to an older guy who just happens to be a serial killer... Um, a lot of it, a lot of the relationship is established over the phone, and uh, I'm not saying that like that particular element could be, you know, uh, revised for this for the you know how with, with how technology has changed and how people interact and everything. But um, I just this this movie really uh, affected me when I was really young and always thought, and I don't even think it's got an official DVD release or anything to this day. And I still think it's a, a incredibly effective movie about um, uh, teen angst and not being able to uh, connect with your parents. So this girl, you know, who who just lives with her single mom attaches to this older guy. And it's, you know, partially kind of like your stalker serial killer movie, but there's just this really creepy undertone to it that I think would be uh, worthy of an update, in my opinion. So I've been bringing that up for years now. To people, yeah. I don't even know if anybody has seen it out there, but I, I, I would assume that people should try and track it down if you can. But no, just no be aware. Knowing our audience, at least one person has seen Lisa, and they're like screaming at their iPod right now. Holy shit! I thought no one else saw it. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So, Dan, um, do you Dan, have anything off, off the top of your head? Like a dream um, project? Is he made into a film? Uh, well, you know, for me, I, I would like to see uh, some of those, you know, much beloved canceled TV shows that everybody talks about making adaptations of. Um, I'd like to see those actually happen. I'd like to see the Party Down movie. I'd like yes. to see the uh, Friday Night Lights, uh, uh, second Friday Night Lights movie. Those things um, are definitely, uh, yeah, you, you tell me that those are happening and I'm, I'm signed up. I'm there. Cool. Good choices, man. Obviously, we'll have the Arrested Development movie at some point, I'm sure, maybe. It's a new series, right? It's, it's a whole Leading new... into a movie, I believe. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. Awesome. All right. We'll see. I really I like how Arrested Development ended, and I, I made this point early, like, uh, a couple days ago on my uh, Twitter and Facebook, but basically, like, the, all of, you add up all of the time, all of Arrested Development together, that's more than all of the Marx Brothers movies together. Like, <laughs> a lot of people are like, oh, it was cut down for its prime, but there were a lot of, there were like 17, 18 hours of Arrested Development that you can, and that's, that's not multiplying by 30 minutes, that's multiplying by 22, like, yeah. Like there's a lot of rest development, so I'm not necessarily wanting for it. But if they can capture the old sort of you know writing and of, of the old rest development, obviously I'll be thrilled. Um, the last question is on the flip side: Is there some piece of entertainment you really love but adamantly do not want to see get a movie movie treatment? Yeah, um, I've got a couple of answers to that question, but some of them have already been made into movies. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like Watchmen, I definitely Watchmen. That's that's first on my list. The nice. second one is uh, is uh, uh, Cloud Atlas, actually. Oh uh, really? Yeah, that's a there's a this tendency where I think that filmmakers get really cocky and decide they uh, you know they're going to adapt something that in another medium that is completely unadaptable, and then you end up with messes like Watchmen or the forthcoming inevitable mess of Cloud Atlas, and uh, so yeah, I'd like to see them not do that. Um, my, I was always really worried when they talked about a uh, film adaptation of a heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, which I think is long dead now. But that was also you know, the sort of thing that I just, I just oh. don't do that. Don't do no. that. Oh, that's off the top of my list. That's that's the top of my list. Don't make that into yeah. a movie. I mean, and it, and there's just some things that are dated and that mm-hmm. are sort of perfect, sort of tomes, you know, sort of similar to Snow Crash. I would say one thing I don't want to see is a neuromancer movie. I don't. I think so much of that. That's inevitable. I bet. I bet so that much could of happen. that's ideas and not visual. Like the only way you could portray the cyberspace uh, in a visual way would just. It, I just. I mean, maybe some genius out there who knows a way to do uh, neuromancer. But to me, it, I just all I can think of is oh, it's going to be a live action reboot. You know, it's going to. Mm-hmm. Not a reboot of Neuromancer, but the cartoon uh, reboot from the 90s. Um, so I'm not excited about that. I don't want to see um, my favorite uh, video game of all time. It was a PC game called Days X, which is an incredible uh, sort of a game about it's a, a conspiracy thriller about, you know, and it's sort of transhumanism where, you know, nanotechnology is augmenting someone. And it's it's a perfect video game, but it's the kind of story that is not con- – you know, like a movie needs a contained story. It needs an arc. Sure. And unless – and unfortunately so many people nowadays, they see, they see uh, properties. They, number one, they see them as properties. They don't see it as a book. Uh, number two, they see it as, oh, well, we'll do a trilogy then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, like how Peter Jackson is like, oh, The Hobbit? Yeah, that's a trilogy. Like no, that's a 400-page that's a book. That's not a – 
Oh boy. So um, I don't. I I I don't. And Days X I know has been sort of in pre-production a couple times, different times. Uh, and I don't want to see Days X made into a movie. But on the most part, I don't really like. Like I don't get upset about bad adaptations. You know, like Watchmen. The Watchmen as the comic will always be there. So I don't. So the fact that Zack Snyder made a sort of a weird, crappy version in 2010 is just sort of a footnote. Or it was mm-hmm. in 2000. I can't remember which. But it's well, sort of just more of a trivia fact than anything that upsets me. Well, there's, I think that's there's, a healthy way of thinking about it. I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, you know what? Let me come back to that question for like a bonus episode, hopefully, because uh, we got to mosey lo- along here. Because we right. got uh, you know limited time to talk about two excellent films, I think. So let's uh, go ahead, Patrick, and get to the director of the episode, Noah Baumbach. <laughs> Do you have the time to listen to him whine about how crazy life is after college? Too nostalgic and look out for Cookie Man. This guy also co-wrote The Life Aquatic. Sometimes he might just kick and scream. There's a squid and a whale at the wedding. He's not a Philistine. He's good at screenwriting. He's a director, y'all. Noah Baumbach. Ben Stiller was a jerk. What's up with that green bird? Why can't he be nicer to Credit Gerwig? Marco at the wedding really was not my thing. Everybody just hated everybody. Sometimes he writes so poignantly. Breakdowns can get pretty ugly. <laughs> he might be cracking up. His dialogue is awesome. He's a director, y'all. Noah Bombach. Noah Bombach. Noah Bombach was born in Brooklyn, New York, the son of novelist and film critic Jonathan Bombach and village voice critic Georgia Brown. He graduated from Brooklyn's Midwood High School in 1987 and received his B.A. in English from Vassar College in 1991. Bombach aspired to become a novelist, much like his dear old dad. But after a series of odd jobs and manuscript drafts, he made his independent feature debut, writing and directing at the age of 25 with Kicking and Screaming in 1995 which is a comedic uh, portrait of uh, postgraduate malaise about four young men who graduate from college and still feel stuck and unsure of where their life is about to go. And that following year, Bombach was chosen as one of Newsweek's ten new faces to look for. Oddly enough, he didn't become more recognized or doused with accolades until uh, almost a decade later after a long break. With 2005's answer to Shoot the Moon with the acclaimed divorce dramedy The Squid and the Whale. I figure we'd quickly go around the room and just give 
our overall impressions of Bombach, but our first film we're going to be discussing is, in fact, his debut feature, Kicking and Screaming. Now, a lot of folks may wonder why I kind of, you know, chose to put Bombach on the list just, you know, because he's not not necessarily known as an incredibly cinematic or visual stylist per se, but there was absolutely a time when I was drawn to these movies that come from primarily a, a screenplay focus. And uh, I was just so enraptured with independent movies back in the mid-90s and whatnot. And, you know, I came across those fi- filmmakers that fit under sort of the Generation X uh, category that also kind of, you know, led maybe just just a little bit to the sort of mumblecore approach to uh, storytelling. And there was kind of like a string of movies that were kind of like, eh, a ho-hum in my opinion, like uh, Sleep With Me and even Metropolitan. I wasn't a big Whit Stillman guy. Uh, I mean, I was a fan of you know Richard Linkletter and even Kevin Smith way back then and obviously around that same time I discovered a film that pretty much caused Patrick to want to beat me in the skull with a ball peen hammer <laughs> and that would be Hal Hartley's Trust but uh, what distinguishes Bombach's films for me are just his sense of characterization and they all have this kind of sardonic, dry sense of humor that I really like. They, it never feels forced to me. It feels completely naturalistic within the, the, the confines of these characters' view of the world they live in and how they see themselves. And I also don't think it's entirely, you know, the, the kicking and screaming is not necessarily just this, uh, you know, thesis of aimlessness, you know, mixed with winty, ba- witty banter that's kind of too smart for the room. I think there is genuinely moving and down-to-earth moments like when uh, uh, the lead character Grover meets up with his father and they talk about uh, the recent separation of of his parents or or the sort of unexpected payoff of the final shot is really moving for me. And I just remain kind of a huge fan of this approach, this stylistic uh, writing, you know, whether it's the fast-paced approach of uh, something like His Girl Friday or in kind of sharp contrast, the non-sequitur pop culture referencing self-involved dime store cycle analytic banter of this movie and it's kind of less about the class schisms of metropolitan and more about the friendships here and that's what i really respond to they're just these perfect representations and they may not necessarily be realistic in terms of how they speak at all times but i i just this is a movie that grows more for me over time like I, I i grow to appreciate it more over time as opposed to something like uh reality bites or singles that may have came out around that same era i just uh those yeah. movies are painful to watch for me now oh i'd so true yeah um D- dan dan your thoughts well um you know i i loved kicking and screaming um i you know when i was 22 i watched kicking and screaming like once a week for you <laughs> yeah, know I I, i've that. seen that movie dozens and dozens of times um you know i could put it on right now and, and probably know every word and i haven't watched it in you know probably five years um so yeah it's a it's a it's a really promising debut um you know i noah bombach uh, like i think he was kind of like the the lena dunham of the 90s oh yeah um, <laughs> good point good point yeah excellent you know, he was he was a, a young whiz kid with you know coming from sort of a, a connected family of privilege who who made good with it and did something really interesting and thoughtful with it and uh, you know so yeah I, I I was a big fan of his um, I think that 
I don't know what happened to him in the ensuing years, but I think that he kind of grew into uh, Squid and the Whale is a good movie. But I think that generally speaking, kind of grew into a, a pretty loathsome filmmaker. Um, but yeah, good start with that guy. Um, I, I <laughs> Lena Dunn is actually perfect because I, mm-hmm. I, I rewatched Kicking and Screaming um, just maybe three hours ago. Uh, and uh, I kind of felt like it almost feels like a season, uh, like a uh, like I've never been as big a fan of Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared as some people are, but it feels like those kind of shows done right, but then cut into a feature film. Uh, his introduction of all the characters is perfect. Yes. I love the fact, like all the characters have that. Like I, I can't decide whether if it's the writing or just the fact that. The way he shoots it is very plain. Um, that makes it feel so much like television to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because part of it is just – it is just he points the camera at the characters and there's very little director flair. He's not trying to get in your way. You know, Despite all of his connections to Wes Anderson, he's very much, uh, he's very much about the writing and, and not about necessarily the style – uh, I think I mean, that opening the, scene, at least the camera roams and sort of well, follows the actors at a distance, you know? Camera, yeah, the camera follows the main character, but it doesn't it, – it's, it's not a tracking shot. It's just a pan. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't praise a, a pan as stylistic post-1920, you know? That's just, that, 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 that's just how it is. Well, but, he's not Renoir, but you know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to do it because I love this movie. I, I really do. It's – yeah. He, because him as a writer is he's incredible, and one of the things he gets away with that no one else gets away with, I don't think, I don't think anyone gets away with it like he does, is he has characters speak their the truth and just like just state plainly, this is what I feel and this is why I'm feeling it, and they're like the themes of the film. This is probably most prevalent in something like Greenberg, where there are all these observations, you know. But it never feels like the the, the uh, screenwriter talking at us, like mm-hmm. you know, at, say uh, Aaron Sorkin sort of thing would be, where just out of nowhere, Sports Night turns into a thing about how hunting is wrong. Like it, it feels like it's coming from the characters, despite the fact that at no point, uh, like despite the fact that everything they're saying doesn't, it's not naturalistic. It's very much stylized. Witty. Yeah, but. I don't know exactly what he does to get that sort of effect, but he's kind of brilliant at it. But I love that how he introduces the characters. I love how they're very distinct, but kind of broad, like all of these things. <laughs> it makes me feel like, Oh, I wish this was a, a TV show. Um, oh yeah. God, if this, if this was a TV show, man, I'd love the, to visit these characters. The downside of that is all of the flashbacks, all of the things um, between Grover and what, what's his ex-girlfriend's name? Jane. Uh, Jane, yeah, all the all the flashbacks between Grover and Jane, all the stuff with the you know the answering machine, like that doesn't that is not nearly as effective. Like when this movie is on, when it's just the characters bouncing off each other and they're all sitting in the living room and they all stop to watch a, a detergent commercial. And so That's like, amazing. <laughs> it's one of, when it's on like that, it is one of the funniest movies ever made. Like I cannot stop laughing every ten seconds. There's a line that just yeah. had, that kills me. But when it when it tries to like really delve into the character of Grover and oh what he lost with Jane, I don't think at this point in his career he was nearly as good at that. And unfortunately, 
I kind of wish there was less of that and more of just um, <laughs> the cougars slash hawks, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, it almost it almost works across purposes because obviously part of the point of this film is that these characters are very cool and these characters are very funny, but that's not going to save them. That's not going to mm-hmm. like it doesn't it doesn't and they're do starting them. to realize that and that's terrifying for them. Right, but unfortunately, the terror I don't feel as much as as the coolness. Like the, yeah. the jokes, the jokes hit a hundred percent, and sort of the uh, except for a few moments. Like I love the uh, is it? Ah, I'm I'm really bad with names. I do apologize. the The character that is most like Grover, um, not you know, uh, not Skippy, and maybe not, Ma- maybe Max. Yeah, Max. With the moment when Max is drunk and staring at the mirror and just oh. talking to himself, which, by the way, it later shows up in Squid and the Whale. Um, That's yep. Good, good, good call there. Like that is great, and that that is an actual great moment that is both like tells you a lot about the character, but doesn't feel forced. But um, a lot of the other stuff, mostly, my biggest complaints are with the flashbacks. I'm not as like. Do you feel a lot when you watch those flashbacks? Um, like, do you really like feel for that relationship or is, are those like, to me, they just feel like interruptions in, in the film I was enjoying. Well, see, I don't think you're supposed to feel for that as like, oh my God, this was true love. Um, because it wasn't, it was, it was like a college relationship and the fact that he's going through this and then, you know, he can't, he can't be with her anyway because he isn't enough of a grown up to have a passport. It's kind of, I, I felt like that was kind of the point. Like it's not the you know life-defining relationship except that it is because he's 22 so at that point it is a life-defining relationship but it's not meant to be yeah he's sort of romanticizing it the problem with that is that's still a good like 15 minutes of the film spent on a relationship that if if we're not meant to see it as life you know we're not meant to see it as life-defining or as true love like what are we meant to see it as like what what is what like I get that it sort of illuminates his character, but I got that just from their conversation at the graduation party. I don't like. I don't feel like there's not a lot to be gained by, um, other than it sets up. It sets it up as something that then the ending subverts. But mm-hmm. it's an awful lot of sort of, especially for a, you know a ninety minute film. It's an awful lot of real you know sort of real estate uh, that is spent on just for a. An end, a subversive ending that is, by the way, uh, sort of stolen from Manhattan. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe that's why I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's something about that, you know, going up to somebody and saying the, I, it could be just the perfect thing at the perfect time, and that's you know what everybody kind of aspires for in in those circumstances. I just I love seeing that in a movie, and I, I would agree that the flashbacks are kind of the weaker part of the movie, and just in terms of how they're presented with like the the, the black and white, and yeah, I mean, I guess you sort of have to visually showcase. Yeah, well, this is a flashback. That's a, that's a weird. I mean, you could gleam there the flashback just by context, but mm-hmm. that is a weird choice that where it, it's the still frames and yeah. stuff. I'm, I mean, but that's just that's more just a stylistic stylistic choice that I don't but I do like. like their scenes together in general even if you don't necessarily have like the emotional weight that you that's, you kind of want I just I, I like I like especially when she's you know sort of uh, criticizing his story and uh, saying you know oh all you guys 
you know, do talk, talk about his Saturday morning cartoons and that's depressing. <laughs> and maybe that, again, that could be just a, like, you know, I've, I've had a girlfriend say something like that at one point. So there's certainly autobiographical reasons to have kind of like an emotional response because I feel like also I know some of these people. Like, I just feel like, you know, there, there are people in this movie I can sort of see being, uh, you know, either friends of mine that I've had that I'm no longer friends with because, you know, you grow apart. Well, one of, yeah, one of Bombach's, like, one of his skills that he has above all else is he's so, such an observant filmmaker. And all of the details of this film, of of the of the uh, freshman who's taking off her shirt and gets it stuck on, not for, like, a comedic length of time, but just for, like, an extra three seconds she gets her shirt stuck on her head because she's a little drunk. Before you know, before she get before she hooks up with Grover, like there, all of his films have these details that are just so perfect, and yeah, they uh, feel really relaxed and sort of uh, just in their delivery. It, but you know, and he lets the scene wonder, breathe. Yeah, I wonder if like Jane Noah Baumbach walks around with a notepad and writes down little because <laughs> they just do feel like oh shit, that's real. Um, uh, I love that. I love. All of the performers are just so funny and, you know, you have to give extra credit to an independent film uh, for because they don't have the luxury of, you know, of, of great casting. And that's honestly what sinks a lot of independent films. And this film is perfectly cast for, you know, from uh, like Parker Posey as sort of the put upon like everyone treats her like everyone treats her like a second class citizen because she's just a junior mm-hmm. but at the same time she does act like a junior um and it's that great dynamic between sympathizing for her and also sort of just and it's sympathizing for her and then seeing where everyone else is coming from that's great like from her to the to the euro trash guy like everyone is perfect in this movie eric stoltz is really great in this and it was weird like how i don't think I wasn't sure. I think I read somewhere that like the stu- like the uh, the studio involved wanted him aboard just because he was a big name at the time, and they plastered his face on the actual uh, video art for the VHS box yes. at the time. And according like he, to, yeah, according go ahead. to, oh no, yeah, sorry. According to IMDb trivia, yeah, in order to get this movie made, they needed some kind of star. Mm-hmm. So Noah Buck was friends already friends with Eric Stoltz. Um, and he, uh, so, so he asked him to be in it and apparently a lot of Stoltz's scenes are improvised. Uh, I'm yeah. especially the book club scene, which just all the more <laughs> impressive. Eric Stoltz was able to just sort of out of thin air, come up with those kind of details about, Oh yeah. And the pony, he finds the horse. And it was violent. violent, but it also strangely arousing. Oh, <laughs> Otis's. Uh, what's the character's what's the actor's name Carlos Jacob is so good in this movie yeah. um, from his introduction where he's like I'm a little man it's like what are you talking about you're a monster <laughs> no I'm a little man I can't do it big he's so perfect um, yeah I, I think it. in general most people would attest to the fact that I like uh, <laughs> carrot whoa was that a dog what did I hear no oh, okay <laughs> Dog. I heard something crazy in the background. I keep hearing weird it shit. It sounded like something being dragged on a table or something. It wasn't. It sounded or it like could all. be just the voices in my head or something. I don't know. 
That's right. <laughs> anyway, I really like movies with characters who have this like uh, who pontificate and have like this kind of externalized introspection and just have to say whatever it is that they're thinking or feeling at the time, even if even if it's un- inappropriate. And he gets away with it. He gets yeah. away with it. They like like I mean, I like the Gilmore Girls. That's a fun show. But at no point is there the way they talk in that show not distracting, you know? At no point does it feel like, oh, these are real characters. I adapted to it. It didn't – I mean maybe it's distracting at times, especially how fast-paced it is. But uh, it's something that I acclimated to and sort of went with as being a stylistic choice. And again – you know, right, but my point, my point is, it's it sort of separates the screen. It sort of separates your, you from this is what the screenwriter is saying and this is what the character is saying. But somehow, Noah Baumbach is able to have characters that do that, and you never once, like, I never once did I see what Grover was saying as anything other than what Grover was saying. I didn't see it. As, mm-hmm. Oh, that's one of, that's, that must be an observation Noah Baumbach had. You know, like. Um, yeah, and and I think where someone like Kevin Smith failed, especially in retrospect, is just and I think even a character in the movie kicking and screaming at one point says, "You guys all talk the same." Yeah, <laughs> and I don't think that's true. I think that like each character has their own sort of nuances, and uh, you know they, they sort of all bond together because they're they're very similar people. But I also think they're very distinctive too. Yes. And that's really important to distinguish each character. Otherwise, it just sort of it's it would get dull to hear yes. every character. Sound the I same. think that the the thing that makes the movie work, um, at least for me, is that it just feels like it just feels very lived in. And so, it when everyone's got these really you know specific idiosyncrasies, um, you don't mind so much because it's it's still these people who you've come to to believe are real, just with little details like the shirt getting stuck on the head or. You know, who in the hell bought black eyed peas? Like, why would that be in there if it wasn't real? <laughs> yeah, like, who in the hell black, bought black eyed peas is neither a joke nor some kind of character. Like, oh, that reveals a lot about his character because black eyed peas. No, that's just. You're, it's you're just perfect. Asking, yeah. Um, lived in was actually the exact phrase I was going to use, which is maybe another reason why it feels like a TV show to me. It feels like maybe the second season or third season of a show once everyone has established so their characters that like that they don't have to that that because uh, like I feel like a lot of times first season of every show people feel the need to establish this character is relating to this character this way because it's. And then, you know, by the time you get to, like, the third season of X-Files, Mulder and Scully just act how they act. It's not a pointed thing. And mm-hmm. this is sort of what Noah Baumbach does, but he does it right from the start. Maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to start Buffy at season two then, Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> start it, Buffy at season two, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, me, and, uh, me and Jim had, had lunch uh, with a previous guest, uh, Gabe, and his friends. Uh, Gabe Powers, who was here for the uh, um, Dario Argento, Dario Argento. Thank you. <laughs> was, I, I kept like all that kept coming to my mind was Suspiria. No, what's his name? Mister Suspiria. No, <laughs> uh, Gabe Powers from the Dario Argento episode and from our blog. If you've been reading our blog, he's been doing amazing posts. Absolutely. Uh, and they they recommended that I start Buffy at season two, which mm-hmm. I guess I will. Like it's hard for me though to not watch every episode. I'm I'm kind of a nerd in that way. Watch the pilot and then uh, skip ahead to season two. 
All right. I think that might even be how I did it because that's what both Art and Dan told me to do. I might have done yeah, it the you, same way. The, the first season is pretty rough. Yeah. So many people say it. Then yeah, I'll do. I'll definitely do that. If it's especially if it's still on instant. I'm not sure if it is, but if not, it I'll, yeah, it's okay. it's still on instant. And as far as oh. Bombot goes in general, I again I think he knows how to just sort of convey sadness and disappointment without people like literally crying. You know, it's like the usual bags of tricks that some directors might rely on don't apply for him. It, it comes from the wisecracking, the need for expressing yeah. everything from the mundane well, to the profound. Yeah, we talked about this on our Woody Allen episode, but the same way I think Woody Allen, you know, it, he better than anyone else, he's able to express character through jokes. Yeah, I think Noah Baumbach has the very has a very similar talent where they, people say things that are very funny but also very illuminating, um, and that's part of what makes this film so rewarding. And also, I don't know how popular Kicking and Screaming is because I hardly ever hear it mentioned by film people, like. I know it just got a Criterion release, so that must have upped its uh, credibility. Sort of interest, yeah. But, um, yeah, sort of its awareness. But if you guys haven't seen Kicking and Screaming, see this movie. It's like and the first. Not, not first to be uh, confused with uh, the Will Ferrell. Yes. Yeah, which I think actually must, came exactly ten years later in two thousand and five. Um, that must have but, been a bummer for uh, Bombach. Yeah. Especially, yeah, you you Google search kicking and screaming. The first result is uh, Will Ferrell, and the second result is kicking. And I don't even, I, I didn't even think anyone remembers that Will Ferrell movie. That's one of the lost Will Ferrell movies, like Semi Pro. <laughs> you know, like no, when people think Will Ferrell movies, they tend to just automatically skip that one. But so I really, I mean, as you know, I I, I do think that Noah Baumbach grew into a better filmmaker, and even though he he sort of got more angry and more cynical. Uh, uh, as, <laughs> well, as there's, we'll, we'll, we'll briefly later, I mean, even, you know, I just want to talk about why Margot at the wedding doesn't work at all, but just briefly later. But I think like, we should definitely get to the, to the other masterpiece that he's done. Yes, his second masterpiece, The Squid and the Whale. The, the Squid and the Whale was the first... Noah Baumbach movie I had seen unless you count his writing job in which case I would probably say like Life Aquatic was the first Noah Baumbach movie I've seen but um, this is actually because 2000 like 2005 is when I started reading film websites and I started like really thinking about film and I, I joined the Chud forums and that's I met a lot of other people who were talking about film so this was one of the first movies I ever really watched with a critical eye and it's and I bought it because uh, I was working at Blockbuster at the time, and I bought it. You know, and I, uh, I, I, it was on. It was used DVD for like nine ninety nine or something. So I bought it, and it still to this day remains one of my most watched DVDs. It's, it's a kind of a perfect movie. Um, uh, we talked earlier about the way Noah Baumbach is, or uh, <laughs> I talked earlier about okay, Noah Baumbach is super observant and. Every 15 seconds in this movie, there's a perfect moment where that, like, of course the character does that. And yet it still shocks me. Not shocks me, but it still surprises me as an audience member. And it's still a delight as an audience member. And it's still so funny. And an actor makes a choice. And, I mean, it's a short film. It's only uh, – hold on. It's, it's only, I think, like 80 minutes long. Uh, yeah. 81 minutes long. But it really is, like, every 15 seconds, there's something that's just – fucking 
perfect in it. And there's Jeff Daniels, Owen Klein, Laura Linney, and of course, sort of the introduction um, to what we would know as yeah. uh, the, as Jesse Eisenberg. Probably still his best role. Um, as much as I love Social Network, um, like the, the the core cast is incredible. And um, earlier Dan talked about how lived in in screaming fills. I, I would love to find out what Noah Baumbach's filmmaking process is just to see like if he does a ton of rehearsals or because mm-hmm. they have an incredible chemistry together. Um, well, I know for a fact wanna, that he uh, – I mean he's he, – I, I read at one point that he's pretty much a stickler to sticking with the script and tries to make things organic to where – uh, yeah, rehearsals aren't necessarily a priority unless the actors are kind of in demand for it. Uh, but like his stories genuinely come from the characters. I mean, he he normally just starts out with like a particular image of two people together, whether it be like a, a son and a ma- mother on a bus together or on a train together, like with Margaret at the wedding. And he builds the story out of that lone characteristic or that lone character. I- that's, that's possible. I don't think that's what happened here because this. Oh is no, clearly, um, this is a biographical film. It is. It is, and it, it, it's kind of funny. Well, one of the things I can, the best thing I could say about Margot at the wedding is that at least that interview scene at the bookstore seems to stem with Bombach's kind of frustration with people asking and trying to attach autobiographical elements to this movie, like every little thing, and like the number one question that he got asked was. You know how autobiographical is this, and can you share more about your own personal experience? But like a writer's own personal life experience inevitably ascribes itself to the story that they're telling, because you know it comes from a subjective place that is influenced by memory. And uh, I just I, I realize that is it's it's because it feels so real, it feels so personal, it feels so you know genuine throughout I the mean, entire movie. There's no reason this movie needs to be set in 1986, but it is. Sure. And that happened to be the time that he was about 16 years old or 15 years old or whatever Jesse Eisenberg's age is in this film. Like that's – like it's it's not that, oh, people assume that it's autobiographical just because people can't imagine someone coming up with this. It is – there's a lot that makes this – but again, Noah Baumbach is one of the most observant filmmakers and he mm-hmm. – his attention to detail is just perfect, and um, I like. I, there's a few things in films I like more than Jesse Eisenberg's uh, false intelligence in this. Um, actually, okay, here's how here's how I want to start the conversation with Squid and the Whale. A lot of people hate this movie because quote unquote unlikable characters, um, which. There has to be a better term for unlikable characters because people love, you know, there will be blood, and that's not a character that you are necessarily rooting for. Um, it's, it, you know, I think the real problem is people find it hard to relate to characters. Yeah, they don't. Under, they're they're not necessarily the most understandable. Like they they don't see where they're coming from, you know. And I guess right. that automatically equates to likability. Like, oh, I can't yeah. like that guy because just, I don't understand it. And it's just a poor choice of words, and that's 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 fine. There's all sorts of poor choice of words running around. I relate to this movie, you know, and I have my own, you know, sort of problems with self-esteem or whatever. But like every negative trait in every main character in Frank, Bernard, Joan, and Walt, uh, you know, uh, Owen Klein, Jeff Daniels, Laura Linney, Jesse Eisenberg, 
every single one of those characters I have been at one point in my life. Sort of the same way I, I talked a long time ago about sort of last summer where every main sort of emotion I have ever felt as an adolescent showed in last summer. Like every dickish thing I've ever done and every just horrible personality trait I've ever exhibited like is ex- – is shown in this film and I think it's an incredibly honest movie because it never once it, it's not nasty or vicious towards these people it doesn't hate these people right. it's not it's in it, it's it's very um uh, I feel it's I, very empathic in that yes. like you know it, it <laughs> like like these all these people are clearly kind of narcissistic and you know, I also have to point out, like, this is this has one of the best establishing of character moments at the dinner table at the beginning. You get to know exactly who these people are within seconds of a dinner table scene. Well, it opens with, yeah, and I mean, honestly, you know, you get to know what they are just from the tennis court. Sure. Oh, no, definitely that, too. But both and, both and, those and moments gel really if, well. I think the tennis court is almost a little on the nose as far as establishing what the film will be, which is... The which will be competitive, um, you know, people in this family teaming up against each other, right? Um, but yeah, it's and it's um, and I mean, another reason why it feels autobiographical, I don't know anything about I, you know, you wrote the intro for Noah Baumbach this week, I didn't, so I honestly, other than the fact that he grew up in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I don't know anything about him, but you can tell it's autobiographical because the movie feels like just a series of memories, um, and that's. Part of one of its strengths is it doesn't feel the need to tell a story. It doesn't need to feel with to need to um, necessarily have every scene, you know, build off uh, literally from every scene where this leads to this, this. Instead, it's sort of an emotional. This memory leads to this memory leads to this memory, and it's and it's just about sort of how these characters break down. But it's not about any one story arc. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it has like kind of cinema verite kind of moments, especially with handheld camera work and things like that. Whereas kicking and screaming, it you know most things were clearly uh, put on a tripod and sort of more structured and controlled. Here, because everybody is kind of out oh, of control. I the, think kicking. I think yeah. I think kicking and screaming is a comedy, so it's shot yeah, and it should uh, you, it should be shot that way. Yeah, I have to be very careful with comedy. Um, unless the filmmaking is the comedy, like you know, like Edgar Wright's films, hit the way he moves the camera and the way he edits it is the jokes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, you just have to be very careful not to get in the way of things and not to step on punchlines and not to distract people from stuff. So, while Kicking and Screaming is a comedy, this is a drama and this is about the emotions. And I think Noah Baumbach doesn't want to. Uh, separate you from the emotions of the film. Now, just a couple of minor, not necessarily quibbles, but just inquiries, if you will, because one thing that I kind of read here and there that came up is the whole, you know, if these parents are so, you know, cultured and hip and kind of in tune with what's going on, how could they not know that Pink Floyd song? That album was huge at the time. Everybody knew what it was. Oh, they could just be really pretentious, you know? Like, they could have just ignored pop music entirely and been, yeah, you know... Rock and roll. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Okay. Rock and roll is beneath them. Um, now, the fact that the school wouldn't immediately... Like, no teachers... I mean, he does get caught eventually, but mm-hmm. the fact that no teachers immediately say, oh, he didn't write that song, sure. But that's, 
you know, that's just nitpicking. That's not a... Oh, no, yeah. I mean, and if you were at a a talent show today and, you know, some kids started rapping Kendrick Lamar, you might might be able to get away with it. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, most people would not know what Kendrick Lamar is. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And uh, the only other thing that was brought up by a friend of mine, because, you know, she, she really likes the movie, but she also just feels that because it's... And I don't know if I agree necessarily because you know we do have the tennis courts, tennis court scene, we do have the uh, dinner table scene in which we're getting points of view from all these characters. But she felt like, okay, this is an autobiographical movie, and the main focal point, the the main perspective comes from the children and how they're responding to watching their parents go through this uh, separation, this divorce, and she felt like it was kind of. Um, uh, questionable to just have scenes with the parents by themselves when it's supposed to be from the point of view of the, you know, the, the, the children and their response. And because it's supposed to be autobiographical, that taking that focal point away feels kind of like not necessarily manipulative, but just not necessarily adding to the overall story. But I don't know if I agree because it, it, it I know it's supposed to be from their the, primarily the children's point of view, but it's, we also get to know, each character individually at different moments. I think um, maybe the, the the term supposed to be is kind of incorrect. It opens with the four of them right. tennis, teaming up against each other, and then it cuts to a dinner scene of the four of them. The film is does mostly come from the children's viewpoint. Again, mm-hmm. another sort of piece of proof that it's autobiographical. And sure. Another reason why it feels autobiographical, but it doesn't betray anything to show – to show the adults as their own. It's not a film that, I mean, it's a film that clearly, uh, that clearly empathizes with the adults. Um, it's a, it's a film that shows them as three dimensional people. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not a film that is supposed to be quote unquote from their two, from the children's standpoint. So I don't think the the single scene of the two adults alone together, uh, is, it breaks any kind of reality consistency, I guess maybe just, like, um, it, I don't, I don't think it makes it inconsistent. I don't think, I think it just illuminates the characters and I think it does, it does a very good job. I think the desperation in Jeff Daniels, when he's talking like just that way, he kind of references my dad said we might have a chance. And then he doesn't like, he's too scared to follow it up with the real question he wants to yeah. is true. Like, I think that scene is incredible. Like, not only is it not breaking anything, it's an incredible scene that I'd hate to have seen go. Yeah, I think the one sort of consistency I've noticed with a lot of Bombax movies, especially later, is that a lot of these characters just lack that kind of self-awareness to where people watching it might be frustrated. Because how could they not realize what they're saying or what they're doing? Or they seem to be so trapped in self-consciousness and disappointment and the worst kind of impulses that people will just get fucking tired of seeing people be that way. I mean, I understand it. I've seen that kind of behavior. Some people, I don't know, they, they, they don't find that pleasurable, that experience of spending time with a character like Greenberg to be pleasurable or even, yeah. and I can understand that. that. And I think that's a good point. If you want to talk about Greenberg, if you want to talk about Margot and the Wedding, like the, I don't think there's any you know Baumbach films that aren't incredibly observant and aren't don't feel true. But the problem with something like 
I mean, I did not get a chance to rewatch Margot and the Wedding, so maybe I'd have a completely different take uh, now. But mm. like, the reason that isn't pleasurable is because there's it's not cut with humor and it's not cut with it seems to be wallowing in sort of depression and anger and angst, and it doesn't it doesn't yeah. and it's horribly sort of, shot. It's like almost intentionally uh, disconnecting you from it, and it doesn't it doesn't have that energy of this film like. This film, the same way every 15 seconds there's something hysterical in Kicking and Screaming, like every 15 seconds in this film, there's just something that it's like, oh, that's fucking perfect. That's the way that uh, the way that Jesse Eisenberg tries to talk around. You, you see in his eyes the way he's talking around the fact that he's talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald, but he hasn't read any F. Scott Fitzgerald. The way that um, – Oh, boy, did I do that in high school. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure I'm guilty of that on the podcast of reading. I'm sure I'm guilty of reading other people's, you know, reviews or I'm sure guilty of reading, you know, what Pauline Kael thinks of the exorcist or whatever, and then repeating it as if it was my own idea. Well, like you, that, you don't know. You don't always do it intentionally. It's sort of like a unconscious act where you just, you know, it sort of sinks into your brain. You don't even realize it half the time, but like just that intentional, Oh, I want to seem smarter than I actually am at that moment in time just to impress a girl, please. <laughs> Absolutely. And and speaking of the girl, my probably one of my favorite actors in this movie is uh the girl who plays Sophie. Uh so natural. Sophie, uh Hallie Pfeiffer who has done well for herself apparently cuz she was in uh, Hold on, the uh, things but she was in uh the Mildred Pierce uh oh, miniseries. Oh, okay. Well, she was wasted in Margot at the wedding. Completely wasted. I don't. I don't even remember in her. But well, she was. She was the girl that Jack Black did stuff with. You can totally like. And one of the problems is, um, and one of the, my problems with Greenberg, in fact, is with characters that are so hateful and so negative and just so vicious to each other. Why are they? Sticking around. Why? Why does anyone like bother talking? To I would them? agree with um, that. Um, Dan, it's in the script. Yeah, I was gonna. <laughs> ask, I was but, gonna ask you, Dan. Like in terms of the the last two Bombach movies, what do you find uh, kind of lacking overall for you to appreciate them? Well, well, I don't have any opinion on uh, on Margot at the wedding because I only watched about ten minutes of it before I, I gave up. Um, so. I don't really care about that movie. Um, it was what I saw of it was terrible, and I, life's too short. Um, as far as Greenberg, I watched all of Greenberg, and uh, it's not a good movie. Um, but I think that what I what I found so it it tried to intellectualize or elevate to art the same dumb problem that every like shitty romantic comedy has, hmm. which is that. Um, I have no idea why the girl likes him. Like I can watch the entire movie and cannot come up with an answer as to why does she like him. And uh, it takes me out of a movie, whether it's, you know, whether it's an Adam Sandler movie or it's a, you know, it's a, a movie that's trying to be an art film like Greenberg. Um, it's just, you know, it treats characters as props. And, and I just think that's really boring. I, well, I think interest. my only sort of overall hypothesis is that she's, drawn to his kind of like vulnerability, but she also has this caretaker role instilled into her that, you know, he's like a, he's like a lost dog who's been through, you know, some sort of emotional breakdown. And I don't know she wants to nurture him in some way. I mean, he's not an attractive guy and he's just, his personality is really off putting. 
the only explanation for someone sticking around is that they literally have some kind of mental problem, whether it's they have no self-esteem or whether they have a, like a codependency disorder. The only reason she would stick around after some of the things he yells at her about. Right. And like, like that, that scene where she tells the story about like stripping for the camera or whatever. And he just like, fuck it. And then leaves like for no reason. Like the only reason she would have for sticking around is that she has some kind of mental disorder. And the problem is the film doesn't explore that the film like says, Oh yeah, she has issues too. She, but it doesn't really give her the full yeah, benefit. I would agree with that. It doesn't make it entirely yeah. clear, but I mean, I, I'm not interested in trying to, you know, ha- like a movie that I have to make excuses for the fact that it's, you know, it doesn't make any sense and that the characters are, are you know, not treated with any consistency or respect. Just it's not worth it. Like there, there are plenty of movies where things do make sense. So I don't. Yeah, I just don't no, see the point. And as a strict contrast, uh, Haley Pfeiffer in uh, Squid and the Whale, like if you're in high school and you are kind of shy and you're kind of like you're shy because oh I'm bookish and I'm smart and that's not what guys want a girl to be or whatever, and you meet this guy who seems to be an intellectual to you like that is extremely attractive you see and you kind of you you kind of see her getting upset with the way he treats her but like you kind of get what her like the first time that she talks about uh the one Fitzgerald book I can't remember exactly what she's talking about and he responds like her eyes light up like (laughs) oh my god someone else I can talk to you about this and you can tell that like in just that one moment you can see this whole history of this character and that is just a perfect acting moment. So Hallie Pfeiffer is sort of the unsung hero, I think, of Squid and the Whale, despite the fact that I think uh, uh, all the char- all the actors are really good, especially uh, Jeff Daniels and Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, God, yeah. Now, but, it's, an, it's incredible. But the one thing I do have to bring up is a very creepy element in this film. And it's just – it's dumb – but like I remember uh, when this first came out and uh, me and uh, Colin were talking about it, it was a little jarring to see Anna Paquin with Jeff Daniels in this movie only because Anna Paquin was Jeff Daniels' daughter in another movie. <laughs> like she was the little girl in Fly Away Home and now, she, you know, it's – I realize it's – it's years later. It's not something that bothered me enough to take me out of the movie. It was just like this random, like, uh, that is kind of weird. That's like a weird connection there. <laughs> Whatever his faults as a filmmaker, Bombach's obviously a smart guy who, you know, is aware of how certain things are going to come off to the audience. And I think that he probably knew that. And your reaction to that is probably, you know, sort of a, a bonus creep that he was going for there. Yeah, I can it, buy it, that. It's, it's not like the relationship wasn't meant to be sort of creepy or wrong mm-hmm. but at the same time you just the other day or was it today you sent me a link uh, of joseph gordon levitt a screen cap just gordon levitt <laughs> ledger in the same movie in 10 things i hate about you and oh my god heath ledger was the joker and george gordon levitt was robin like <laughs> it's it, it's, it's funny real, to come up with that stuff if, though. unless unless it's like something as as huge as say the pairing of robert redford and paul newman or you know Jack Lemon and, and Walter Matthau, like 
I don't think you should. I don't think you should not cast people because they would bring in a context of oh, they were in this other movie together. Sure, sure. I mean, it's just weird too, thinking that there's been a trifecta for Anna Paquin seducing teachers, <laughs> like fucking Twenty uh, Fifth Hour, Squid and the Whale, and now Margaret. Like she's pretty much played that exact same role. At least with Margaret, there's a lot more. She gets a lot more to do because it's the lead role and everything. Uh, there's a lot more for her to um, play off of in that movie, and it's super long. <laughs> but it's just it, it's interesting that like that that just became her thing before uh, True Blood came along. <laughs> um, um, let's sort of like wrap things up here because okay. uh, the only thing I don't like about Squid and the Whale, and there's mm-hmm. this always one scene in every you know, Baumbach movie uh, that does this that sort of makes me sad <laughs> is that. There is the scene between the psychiatrist and uh, and Jesse Eisenberg, where Jesse Eisenberg is standoffish and like, "Well, did you get a PhD?" And then the the psychologist explains, "No, I got a master's or whatever." And then immediately from one question, Jesse Eisenberg goes into this long monologue about this. Yeah, he has an uh, epiphany. I don't know. He makes that associational tie all of a sudden to something from his past. It, I feel like every point in the movie, there's some – there's either a character or a scene or something where a character speaks the point of the film to the audience. And that always drives me crazy because you know that if it's subtext, keep it sub. You know, keep it underneath. Don't have someone just speak the point of the movie. And you know, I, I was on the film – Pretty much Jive to Con- the camera no less. Right. And I, I was having the film – I was on the film Jive Con- uh, the podcast about um, the film uh, Take This Waltz, and I had the same problem with sort of uh, Sarah Silverman's character. In that. Mm. And I think, well, we can talk, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about Take This Waltz at the end of the year. Oh, yeah. When we wrap the end of the year, and we can have that debate then. Sure. Jim. But um, I like, I really think that it's against Jesse Eisenberg's character completely to trust this psychiatrist after one question enough to go into this long like story and it's not a bad story and it's not a bad scene and the acting isn't bad like all the complaints i love against this movie are very small but like i i do think that's just sort of an unfortunate moment where this kind of perfect film which wastes no time and makes no missteps and hits all kinds of crazy highs and has an incredible moment every 15 seconds like i said um like it seems to be just made of perfect moments and just at, in the middle of it or not in the middle of it, towards the end of it, there's this scene that sort of I feel sinks it for me. Not sinks the film because it's obviously so – Just the moment itself. Yeah, I, I can yeah, see that. It doesn't really take me out of the movie entirely either. I'm still in the – just the emotional uh, state of how he's trying to process things and – I, it does feel like a screenplay kind of you know puppet string moment, or at least just to have have you aware in such a direct way. Uh, but I don't know. It's it, I could see that being an issue, but it doesn't really take anything away from the movie. Um, overall, like I really, really am glad that I got to revisit, especially Kicking and Screaming and Squid and the Whale, because I appreciate them more and more with each viewing. I like his portrayals of kind of this emotional paralysis that doesn't allow them to actively grow and change. You know, but they do in small ways. It's not completely hopeless. There is always hope. Even even minor 
just it's very minor, but Margaret Margaret the wedding is kind of trying to end on a hopeful moment, but I don't think it's it pays off at all. But I think with uh, Squid and the Whale and Kicking and Screaming, that those are his two best films by far. They're very specific, character-oriented stories where everyone wears their imperfections on their sleeve, and I immediately respond to that in in, in any kind of writing. So yeah, um, and also what what can you say? Like I still you know quote certain things from Squid and the Whale. Oh, that's minor Cronenberg. <laughs> I bet, she, I bet she can tighten her pussy muscles just the right way to make you come in ten seconds. Like that is the perfect, absolutely <laughs> perfect line of dialogue. Like for a virgin sixteen-year-old, like that is perfectly the their mindset. And everything that is just incredible. I love that. Agreed. <laughs> so Dan, overall yeah. thoughts. Well, um, you know, I, I, I think that, like I said, uh, you know, kicking and screaming is a, a pretty perfect debut, and then, uh, you know. He never really lived up to it. I think that Squid and the Whale is a good movie, um, but I think that generally, like, you know, he seems more like a cautionary tale to me of, like, when you are the, you know, the chosen 26-year-old, you know, who's going to conquer Hollywood, um, you really need to make sure that your talent, that you grow into your talent. And uh, generally, I don't think he did. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting to get a chance to, to sort of revisit that and talk about it a little bit. I don't know if I agree with that. I would say I don't. I mean, obviously, I don't think Greenberg is as good as Squid in the Whale or Kicking and Screaming. No, I still I still really like Greenberg, though. I have to say, I think again, it's more of a cautionary tale in some ways. Like, oh, don't become an asshole like that guy. (laughs) I don't know. Gerwig will hang around with you and fall in love with you anyway. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a cautionary tale. Things end up pretty all right for Greenberg. Um, True. uh, I would I would say that. Like the one thing Greenberg does that his other films don't do is Greenberg. Like every line out of his di- every line out of his mouth is pretty much just a character stating exactly how he feels, um, and it gets away with it. Uh, like like I said, I think every Noah Baumbach movie has this moment where someone just says what the movie is about, and I think that is like the entirety of Greenberg. And I think it. I think unlike the other films, uh, I think that. Greenberg gets away with it, and I think the scene with Green in between uh, Greenberg and the college kids like is actually pretty great, despite the yes. fact that it's literally just him stating the themes of the movie. And I don't know any other director who who's ever done that. And so it's like I don't I wouldn't say Noah Baumbach is uh, something happened to him, and now he's never going to go back to his former glory. I'm I'm always excited to see what he has to do. But well, what's crazy to find out is that he's got a new movie premiering at TIFF that he co-wrote with uh, Greta Gerwig, and it's black and white, and it's kind of more of a mumblecore sort of approach. So it should uh, be interesting to see how that goes. We'll see. That that feels like maybe the opposite approach. I feel I feel someone like Noah Baumbach, his whole you know his whole strength is screenwriting, and mumblecore is sort of defined by improv by yeah. improvisation, often kind of poor improvisation, I would say. Um, yeah, with with some exceptions, obviously. I think Hump Day is really great about improvisation. But oh god, yeah. I I would I'd prefer to see Noah Baumbach maybe go in a different direction. But I think he will. I think he'll come up with something good really soon again. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Does he does seem to have been in? You know, I I do appreciate filmmakers who sort of find their role where I can continue to make my films because people I have this level of respect and my films cost this cheap to make, 
and they because of my name they make this much profit like uh, I appreciate that maybe he'll be able to go on for a while making films and I I appreciate what he do even though he's clearly other than you know like Squin the Whale he doesn't he has never been able to consistently reach really the heights of some of the other filmmakers we've covered yeah I would agree with that overall all right um well, thanks a lot, Dan, for joining us on the show today. It was great having yeah, you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's, uh, yeah, plug away. Let's hear about where you, people can read a lot of your writing and uh, you know, follow you on Twitter and whatnot. Well, sure. I'm, at, I'm on Twitter at uh, Dan Solomon, just my name, S-O-L-O-M-O-N. Uh, I've got a website at dansolomon.com. Um, you know, I, I appear pretty often in the Austin Chronicle and the Texas Observer, um, I write about music uh, a couple of times a week for MTV Hive, and uh, I write about all sorts of stuff for a website out in Texas called culturemap.com. So you can find me there and occasionally elsewhere as well. Great. That's awesome to hear. I'm glad you're keeping busy and everything, and you even recently interviewed Greg Dooley, and that was uh, quite a treat. Nice to have oh, you yeah, around yeah, hanging yeah, out and seeing good. the Afghan wigs. Good times. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and every, everybody else, uh, please do um, check us out at directorsclubpodcast.com. That's our website. Email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Instant Jim. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapol. Uh, I have not updated my viewing journal in quite some time, but I promise you I will return to it. That is, uh, that is Martha Marcy uh, Nash & Young at uh, wordpress.com not at word, dot wordpress.com great yeah and I'm over on Letterboxd and I occasionally just mostly just put star ratings on what I've been watching lately and you can keep up with my film journal there as well and although both of us have been very busy hopefully at some point we will throw a bonus episode your way sorry about the delay with that but yeah with possibly moving and all sorts of crazy things going on and Patrick working as much as he has We'll probably normally just stick to our two episodes uh, a month format. Speaking of which, who's our next director, Patrick? William Friedkin. Whoa! Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, And we're going to have Phil Noble Jr. Uh, You might know from Badass Digest. You might know from directing uh, various bio specials. Yeah, nice. Uh, Glad to have him back. Yeah, yeah. He was on our uh, first John Carpenter episode. Great. Uh, so it would be great to have him back. Yeah, looking forward to that, especially ha- having seen Killer Joe recently. <laughs> what a fun movie that was. Oh, boy. So I'll, I'll try and like do a, a spoiler-free review at the end of the, the, the next episode on that, probably. Uh, good times, good times. All right, guys, thanks again for listening to the show, and uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks for William Friedkin. Goodbye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoy this song I wrote. Here it is.
standing in the aisles with itchy feet. Who would win, Freddy or Jason? Freddy. So you've got to be ready at all times. Because if a customer wants to know where a movie is, you've got to be prepared to tell them what section it's in. Sure. Okay, for example, if I were to say Turner and Hooch, what would you say? Comedy. Close. We've got a special section for dog pictures. Dog buddy pictures. Oh, I see. Look at this. Someone put Terms of Endearment in with prison movies. Oh! Twit. It's supposed to go in terminal illness. What are your influences? Um, Samuel Fuller. All the good ones, all the other ones. Yeah, yeah.